Well, you can open with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll read the whole chapter. Uh, all of chapter 4 will we'll only be this evening looking at verses 17 to 24. But it's been a very long time since we've been in Ephesians, so it's probably worth jumping all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, catching us up to speed a little bit, and reading the whole chapter together. After we read, we'll stand and sing, and then following that, we'll have a chance to consider the passage a little bit more deeply. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to a measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth Is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. 
Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Well, I mentioned it's been a while since we've been in Ephesians together, and so it's probably worth taking at least just a moment to catch us up to speed, remind us where we are in the greater picture, uh, the bigger story of the letter to the Ephesians. Here, as we come to chapter 4, again, we're looking this evening just at verses 17 to 22. You probably remember, hopefully remember, that as we've worked through Ephesians uh, towards the end of last year, we saw that the first three chapters had to do primarily with our identity in Christ, the grace of the gospel, what God has done through Jesus in making us his church in order to, to display the glory of his grace throughout all eternity. That's the theme of the first three chapters, God's glory through God's grace in our redemption. That's, Paul has pounded that home in the first three chapters, wanting you as a believer to know the grace of God that has been shown to you in Christ, it's chapters 1 through 3. We saw that that included, um, in, the, in the first chapter, this unraveling or this, um, this display of all of the spiritual benefits that have been given to us in Christ. And then Paul moves on from there to show that both Jew and Gentile have inherited the same salvation through Christ. They've been made one new man in the one church of God through the one body of Christ by the same blood of Christ belonging to the one Lord. And that's, that's the argument of the first three chapters. We are the church of Christ, heirs of all the spiritual benefits that are poured out into our lives through Jesus Christ. Then we get to chapter 4, and the theme of the letter, the, the tone of the letter shifts, and he moves away from telling us all that God has done for us in Christ, not completely, he continues to talk about it some, but the theme is no longer primarily the grace of God in an objective, completed sense, in the sense that God has saved you, poured out grace on you, made you a part of his church. Paul now moves to how do you respond to that? How do you live in light of the immeasurable grace that God has shown to you in Jesus Christ? That begins in chapter 4, and he begins by saying, you should walk in a manner worthy of this calling. And the first thing he tells us about what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling is that it looks like walking in unity as the church, being united, being careful to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then it looks like each of us using our particular gifts to build up the body of Christ in verses 7 through 16 of chapter 4. To walk worthy first looks like preserving the unity of the church, but then second, it looks like us using our gifts, our abilities, our time, and our resources for the building up of the body of Christ. And Paul now transitions again, and he moves away from this concept of the oneness of the church and the building up of the church together, and he starts to talk more specifically about ethics, about the day-to-day -day practice of living out the Christian life. So maybe... In one sense, we could think of it in terms of moving slightly away from the corporate congregational emphasis 
and drawing it down to the level of the individual. What does it look like for you as an individual, day after day, to live in a manner that's worthy of your calling and worthy of the grace that you've been shown in Christ Jesus? And so we come to the ethical section of the letter then, as we get to verse 17 of chapter 4. And in these verses tonight, going through verse 24, I want to break it up just into two sections. First is the old walk. And then second is the new man. The old walk, and that's verses 17 through 19. The old walk, verses 17 to 19. And then the new man, verses 20 to 24. The old walk and the new man. Paul first gives the exhortation to the Ephesians not to walk the way they used to walk. And we, again, we saw that this uh, term to walk at the beginning of chapter 4, when Paul talks about the walk of our life, he's talking about the general conduct of our lives. How we walk is how we live. Who are you when you're at work? Who are you when you come to church? Who are you in your home? Who are you when you're alone? That's your Christian walk. The full uh, encompassing of, of, of how you live. That's your walk. And Paul is saying here, don't walk just like you used to walk, just like all the Gentiles, all the unbelieving Gentiles, don't walk the way that they walk. Paul's writing to a church, likely multiple churches, that are largely Gentile, and and that's why the emphasis throughout the letter has been on this relationship between Jews and Gentiles. He's writing to a church that's largely Gentile, and he's pointing them back to how they used to live, but he's also pointing them outside of the church and saying, do you see how the, the unbelieving Gentiles around you live. You used to live like that. Titus chapter 3, it tells us there that we shouldn't treat others with contempt. We should show consideration for all men. And he says, because you yourself were also once disobedient. You were foolish. You were hateful, hating one another, spending your life in malice and envy. That was you. But God has made you something different. He has washed you. He's made you new. Paul is saying to the Ephesians, look around and see the godless life of the unbelieving Gentiles, not only their life, but your life, what it used to be. And then he says, don't have anything to do with that old way of life. And then he describes what that way of life looks like. Verses, second half of verse 17, after he says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. He says, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. We'll stop there for now. Those three descriptive adjectives or nouns, some of them nouns, some of them adjectives, I guess. Um, The three descriptive terms that he uses, futility of their minds, futility, and then the uh, the darkness of their understanding, and then the ignorance that is in them, Those three have to do with the intellect, the mind, the darkness of their understanding, and the ignorance that is in them. He's talking about their intellect, their mental grasp of things, their ability to rightly process the world around them, to rightly understand things the way that they are. And he says first that they walk in the futility of of their mind. So the first aspect of, of this fallen intellect is what he calls a futility 
of their mind. And, and the idea here, it's kind of like a carnival uh, mirror. The idea here is, is you have these people who are trying to understand the world around them. They're trying to understand the meaning of life, why they exist, why are they here, where did we come from, what's the purpose of life, how should we live, who am I? Trying to understand the foundational questions of life, and Paul says all of their searching is futile. It's pointless. And, and the picture is, is kind of like a carnival mirror where, let's say, their, their body is reality, it's truth, but they're trying to understand truth in the carnival mirror. And when they look, instead of seeing, from, in my case, a 5'11 male, they see a 3-foot tall, wavy individual whose feet are above his head, upside down. Everything is distorted and twisted. And, and they study this carnival mirror trying to figure out what they look like. What am I really like? Who am I? How tall am I? What's my face like? What's my shape like? And they study this mirror, and the more they study it, they, more, they, they, they start to think, yes, I've got it. I know who I am. But when we look and we see this person trying to figure out who they are in the reflection of a carnival mirror, we recognize, how futile is that? You will never come to a right understanding of yourself by looking at a carnival mirror. And that's what Paul's saying. They, they try to understand the world around them, but it's futile. They'll never get it. And he says they'll never get it because they're darkened in their understanding. They're darkened in their understanding. If I gave you a pen and a piece of paper, and I took you into a room that you had never been in, and I said, all right, I want you to draw on this piece of paper everything that you see in this room, the shelves, the chairs, the desk, everything that, all the furniture there might be. I want you to draw everything you see, but the only catch is, before we walk into the room, I turn off all the lights, and, I shut, and then when we go in, I shut the door, so it's pitch black in there, and then I tell them, try to draw everything that's in this room. That's what Paul is getting at. They're darkened in their understanding. They're trying to understand the world, but they, they can't even see it. They, they don't even understand the, the general outlines of reality. Everything about their understanding is distorted and darkened, and they have no starting place to even begin drawing. And he says this is because of the ignorance that is in them as well. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. They have no fellowship with God. They don't enjoy the life of God. They don't know the fullness of God because they're ignorant of God. They, they don't know his greatness and his glory and his righteousness and his holiness and his mercy and his love and his compassion and his goodness. And as a result, they're strangers to his life, separated from him, excluded from him. All of those things have to do with the intellect. They're futile in their minds, they're darkened in their understanding, and they're ignorant of God. And that's a pretty miserable picture of the, of the unbeliever. It's a picture of all of us in our natural condition, but it's a, a pretty miserable picture of unbelievers still today who are without Christ. But if we just stopped there, we could walk away and think, that's, is it really their fault? Is it, if, if they're ignorant, and if their mind is futile, and if their understanding is darkened, and if they don't have a starting point, and if it's like going into that room with the lights off and trying to draw the picture, are they really culpable? Is it really their fault if they're not able to make sense of the world that they're in and of the God who made them? But Paul isn't at all suggesting that they are victims 
or that we were in our sinful condition victims of our ignorance. We're not victims of our darkened understanding or victims of our lack of knowledge because the problem is not merely intellectual. It is intellectual. The unbelieving heart, the the old way of life of the Gentiles, it is an intellectual issue because we cannot understand reality the way that it is. But it's not just an intellectual issue because the real problem is a problem of the heart. It is the heart and the hardness of the heart that makes us unable naturally to see things the way that they really are and to rightly process God's creation so that we might understand the way his world works. And we see that in verse 18. If you look down on the last part of verse 18, Paul says, because of the hardness that is in them. They are ignorant, darkened, and futile because of the hardness that is in them. Because it's saying this is the cause, this is the underlying root issue. Their ignorance stems from a hardness of heart. The mind does not and the mind cannot understand God or God's creation because the heart has decisively rejected God as creator. That's, that's the root issue. A hardened heart that has decisively rejected the glory of God the creator. Really what Paul is saying here is no different than what he says in Romans 1. So if you're familiar with Romans 1, he talks about how the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness. Why? Because men in their unrighteousness, they try to suppress the truth of God. They try to hide away, put away, what they know to be true of God. He says what can be known about God is plain to them. God has made it evident to them. But in their rejection of God, they try to suppress it and hide the knowledge that they have of him. And as a result, having become callous, Paul says in Romans 1, they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. And that's what Paul says here. So what Paul is saying is that this hardness of heart is what causes us to reject the glory of God. And when we reject the glory of God, we cannot see his creation the right way. We're going to be blinded and darkened to understanding anything about his creation the way that we should. Because God must be the supreme ruler and authority over all things. And when we remove him from his place of authority, all of creation gets flipped upside down. And we put something else in his place, and we start to worship and love and serve something other than God as creator. And what Paul is saying is that when we do that, because of our hardened hearts, it doesn't stop there. But he goes on in Ephesians 4 and verse 19, and he says, this rejection of God, it causes our hearts to be callous. Verse 19, he says, they having become callous, which then leads us to give ourselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. The idea here is that when we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and we over and over again tell ourselves God is not who he says he is, God is not the righteous king over all things, he is not my creator, I am my own God, I am my own ruler, I am autonomous, I can make the decisions I want to make, As we do that, there's this process of becoming more and more callous to the truth of God. And and what it is, is it's a hardening 
a searing of our conscience. And, and so what that looks like is all of us have been given a conscience. Siri's talking to me. All of us have been given a conscience. God in his grace has given us the ability to feel something of what is right and what is wrong. There is no human on earth who is not born with some measure of conscience. That is God's grace, that we are able to understand this is right and this is wrong. This is good and this is bad. This is helpful and this is damaging. That's our conscience guiding us. But what Paul is saying here is that as our hearts are hardened to God and we continue to reject him, that conscience gets quieter and quieter and quieter. And we become more and more emboldened and uh, zealous in our pursuit of sin and sinful indulgence. This is true of the unbeliever. The unbeliever who rejects God is, is going to follow this trajectory. Paul's not saying that every unbeliever is equally immoral or equally impure, but he is saying this is the general pattern that every un- unbelieving heart will follow because it is rejecting God, it will necessarily continue on a course of further and further sin and immorality and impurity. But it's not just the unbeliever. Even as believers, we're prone to the same pattern in our minds, this hardening of our conscience, this searing of our conscience. In Hebrews chapter 3, we're told that we should encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. And he says, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. It lies to you. It convinces you that it will taste good to consume it. And when you bite it, then the result is not just the poison that it gives, but it, it actually hardens your heart further. And you become more willing to indulge in it the next time. And then you indulge in it some more, and you become even more willing to indulge in it the next time. And And though it often starts with a small thing, maybe tolerating a little bit of resentment or bitterness in your heart or allowing a little glance in a direction you shouldn't or allowing a little fib, a little dishonesty, whatever it might be, it might start as something small and even as a believer, your conscience says, don't do that, that is sin, it is wrong. But instead of listening to our conscience, turning away from the sin, we harden ourselves to it, we indulge the sin. And and the result, according to Hebrews 3 and according to what Paul is saying here, is that when we do that, we become hardened to it, and it's easier to do it again. And we do it again, and it becomes easier to do it again. And not only to do the same sin, but we become increasingly emboldened in our sin, and we're willing to do greater measures of sin because our conscience is getting quieter and quieter and quieter. Paul is saying, be on guard against that. Even as believers, that was your former way of life. As a Gentile unbelieving in Ephesus, that was your former way of life, to have a seared conscience indifferent to what is pleasing or displeasing to God. That's not who you are as a believer. Don't walk that way any longer. That's the old walk, Paul says. This ignorance of God, hardness of heart, and this callous conscience toward him. That's the old walk. But Paul says, don't walk that way any longer. And he says, don't walk that way any longer because that's not who you are anymore. And this is the second section here this evening. It's first, don't walk the old walk. But second, don't walk the old walk because you are a new man. Don't walk the old walk. Don't follow that same course of sin and indulgence in the flesh because that's who you used to be. 
but instead walk a new way because you have been made a new man in Christ. So first, the old walk, but then second, the new man or the new self in verses 21, sorry, 20 to 24. Paul says in verse 20, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. Then he'll go on to say that you lay aside the old self, put on the new. But I want to start with just that first part. You did not learn Christ in this way, he says, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. When Paul says, if indeed you have learned Christ and you have heard him and have been taught in him, he's not questioning the Ephesians conversion. We could go back earlier in the book to, uh, to chapter 1 and see his thankfulness for the Ephesian church because he's convinced that the grace of God has grabbed hold of them and that they've been converted to Christ. So he knows that he's writing to Christians. So when he says, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, Really what he's saying is, assuming that you have. I'm, I'm assuming this is basic foundational stuff for someone who is a Christian. This, if, if you're in Christ, assuming that you've learned anything about the truth that, is, that it is in Jesus, this is the understanding you will have. And what is the understanding that they'll have? Well, he says, verse 22, the basic understanding that every Christian has, if you're a believer, you have learned this, verse 22 that in reference to the former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So what is Paul saying in those three verses? What is the foundational truth that every Christian, apparently, should understand? Well, first, that we lay aside the old self, that we be renewed in the spirit of our mind, and that we put on the new self. That we lay aside the old self, that we be renewed in the spirit of our mind, and that we put on the new self. And when Paul says the old self, the word there is literally man, the old man, When he says the new self, the word is literally man, the new man. So we've laid aside the old man, and we have put on the new man. All right, so there are a couple of ways that these verses are understood, two different ways primarily that they're understood. When Paul says, you learned in Christ to lay aside the old self and to be renewed and to put on the new self, there are two different ways that we can understand him. First, what Paul might be saying is that when you learned Christ, when you heard him and were taught in him, you learned that the Christian life should daily be one of putting aside the old man, renewing your mind day after day, and putting on the new man day after day. A continual process of putting off the old man, renewing your mind, and putting on the new man. That's the first option. Everyone following me on that? Continual process. The other option would be it's a past tense action. Paul is saying, when you learned Christ, this foundational understanding that you learned and received and heard and understood in Christ, what you understood was that you, at that point in time, laid aside the old man. 
And at that point in time, you were renewed in your thinking. You began to think about things in an entirely new way. No longer the old way, which was futile and ignorant and darkened and hardened, but a completely new way. Your, your, the spirit of your mind was renewed, and you put on, at that point in time, a new man. All past tense. So one option is an ongoing action that the Christian is supposed to do day after day, putting off, renewing, and putting on. The other is that it's all a past tense action. You, when you learned Christ for the first time, when you were converted to him, when you believed on him, repented of your sins, and were united to him, what you learned was to put off the old man, to be renewed in your thinking, and to put on the new man. I think that looking at the context and especially looking at other ways that the old man is referred to in the scriptures, I think the second option is the right one. I think what Paul is saying is that when the gospel was preached and the Ephesians received it and learned Christ and heard him and believed, it was at that time that they put off the old man. And it was at that time that they were completely renewed in their thinking. And it was at that time that they put on the new man. And I think that for a number of reasons, as I've mentioned. One is the context. Paul says that you put on the new self, and then he says this, this new self or this new man, it has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It has been created. God created something new, and he clothed you with it. He put it on you at a point in the past. That's a past tense activity. He created you. He recreated you. It's the same thing Ephesians 2 says, that though we were dead in our sins, he has made you alive and He has made you, he has created you in Christ for good deeds. He has recreated you. So when we are converted, there is a recreation that takes place. We become a new man in Christ. And then if we look at how the the New Testament speaks about the old man, I think it becomes obvious that as a Christian, you are not the old man any longer. You are the new man. That is your identity. So if you look at the way the, the Bible talks about the old man... In the New Testament, it refers to who we were outside of Christ, and it refers specifically to who we were in Adam. Who who we were in Adam. We were united, in a sense, to Adam prior to being united to Christ. Those are the only two options for humanity. You're either in Adam and in his fallen condition, or you're in Christ and in his redeemed condition. So the old man has to do with who we were in Adam when Adam sinned, all of sin was, all of humanity was cast into sin with him. And we were guilty because of his guilt, not to take into consideration our own guilt, but simply because of our union with him, his guilt became our guilt, his corruption became our corruption, his condemnation became our condemnation, his spiritual death became our spiritual death. We entered into Adam's condition with him when he sinned. And our condition with him was hopeless, separated from any relationship with God. It produced in us a love for sin. We were slaves of sin. We were glad uh, subjects to its tyranny. The power that ruled in our hearts was not righteousness and grace, but the power that was at work in our hearts was unrighteousness and hostility toward God and a rejection of him That was the the foundational principle at work in our hearts. That was our identity in Adam. Complete separation, hostility, and 
uh, enmity toward God. It's clear from passages like Romans 5, I won't go there, but Romans 5 explains what happened because of Adam's sin. All of humanity cast into sin together with Adam. And outside of Christ, that's who all of us are, either presently if we're not in Christ or who we were at one time outside of Christ. But the New Testament clearly teaches that when we come to know Christ, when we are saved, the old man is put to death. He is crucified. And in his place, we put on, we become a new man. Everything that was once true of us in Adam, everything, our condemnation, our guilt, our corruption, our spiritual death, everything that was once true of our condition in Adam becomes untrue of us. And everything that Christ is for us becomes true of us. We're no longer united to Adam and all the consequences of his sin. We're united to Christ and all the benefits of his redemption. And we're taken out from under the guilt of Adam because we're brought into and given the righteousness of Christ. And we're spared from Adam's death and condemnation because we're brought into the eternal life of Christ. And we're no longer under the dominion and the rule and the reign of sin, but we're all given sufficient grace moment by moment to live righteously and to overcome temptation. We're no longer ruled by Satan's tyranny, but we're ruled by Christ as our kind and gracious master. That old man that we once were in Adam, according to the New Testament, is dead if you are in Christ. The old identity that you once had in Adam is not your identity any longer. We've been made a new man. We have a new identity. We are a new creation. That's how the New Testament speaks of the believer. Just two passages to support that. Romans 6, verses 5 to 7. Paul says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. That's old man, same language. The old man was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Crucified, he says. The old man was crucified with Christ in order that you would no longer be a slave to sin. Colossians 3, verses 9 to 10. Paul says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self. Again, that's old man and new man. You have laid aside the old man with its evil practices. That's a part of who you were. That's not a part of who you are. And you have put on the new man. And this new man, he says, is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. It's very similar to Ephesians. It's been created in the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness of the truth in Ephesians. In Colossians, he says, this new man is being renewed according to the image of the one who created him. Here's the idea. The old man was in the image of Adam in all of his sin. That old man was crucified. The new man is who you now are in Christ, and this new man is in the image of Christ. Both of those passages make clear the old man is dead. You're a new man in him. I think that's what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4. I think that's the argument 
that he's making. He's not merely saying, though this is true in a lot of ways, he's not merely saying that day after day we have to put off the old man. In a sense, depending on how you understand that, that's true. Put off the practices of the old man. Put off the habits of the old man. Put off the, the, uh, the, the, the remnants of the old man that are still in our sinful flesh. Put those things off. But he's not merely saying that. He's saying something much more profound. He's saying the old man is not even who you are any longer. It has been put off. You're something new. You were renewed in your thinking, and you were made new in Christ, and you became a new man. And I think that's Paul's point, especially in light of the greater argument of chapter 4. We just saw in verses 17 to 19 that Paul is urging them to not walk the way that they used to walk. And what's the greatest incentive for you to not walk the way that you used to walk? An understanding that you're not who you used to be, that you're a new person. And so Paul, having urged them not to walk that way, he now encourages them with the reminder, because you're not that person, you're new. It's fitting for you to walk a new way because you are a new man in Christ. And then if we were to continue on in this chapter in verse 25, he starts to give specific exhortations about what it looks like to, to clothe ourselves in the behavior and attitudes of this new man. And, be, and, and so both with regard to the old walk and with regard to putting on this behavior of the new man, right at the center of it is the reminder of who you are. The best way to grow in holiness, the best way to grow in righteousness and in love and in likeness to Christ is to know who you are, to know your identity. You are a new man in Christ, having been set free from the slavery that was yours in Adam. In other words, you cannot be what you are until you know what you are. You can't live the way that you were redeemed to live until you understand the fullness of your redemption. Paul wants them to understand who they are. He wants us to understand who we are. One of our most foundational problems in our day-to-day struggle against temptation and sin is a proneness to forget our identity. We're not the slaves we once were. We're not bound to the same sinful habits and selfish attitudes that once defined us. We're not bound to anger like we were in our sin. Perhaps that was one defining characteristic of your life as an unbeliever, an angry person, a wrathful person. We're not slaves of lust. We're not slaves of greed. We're not slaves of bitterness and resentment. We're not slaves of envy and covetousness. None of those things grip our hearts with bonds the way that they did when we were outside of Christ. None of them. When the old man was laid aside and when the new man was put on, we were set free from the rule and the reign and the tyranny and the slavery of every single one of those sins. What Paul is not saying is that we'll no longer struggle with sin that it won't be an ongoing battle day after day. He says in Galatians that we have this constant battle that takes place between the spirit and the flesh. And the flesh is waging war against the spirit. And that, that's true of the believer. We have the remnants of our fallen humanity still infecting and affecting so much of what we do. But the difference is, now that we are a new man, we don't have to sin any longer. We've been set free from bondage to it so that we have no option 
we, we do have the option. We have the ability now in Christ not to sin. Previously, before we were in Christ, we were sinning according to our nature. We were doing what was consistent with who we were. Sin was the foundational operating principle in our hearts. And so when we sinned, it was simply the outworking of our nature. But now that we are in Christ and are a new man in him, when we sin, we're doing so against our identity. We are doing what we are no longer. We are behaving in a way that is inconsistent with what we are in Christ. We're returning back to the behavior that belonged to our previous identity in Adam, not our new identity in Christ. A number of years ago, I heard a very helpful illustration that I think paints a good picture of this and, and helps us understand what it is to really grasp our freedom from sin as believers. You've probably seen the way that grown elephants, if you've uh, I've been around a grown elephant, seen it on TV, I'm sure everyone at some point has seen this, a grown elephant can be led with a very small rope, really thin rope, just a normal-sized rope. Has anyone ever seen that? Like a trainer walking an elephant around with a really small rope? Maybe in a circle inside the, the fence or whatever? Why is it that how many tons do an ele- does an elephant weigh? How, however many ton elephant is led by a little man holding a little rope when everyone knows that at any moment that elephant could rip itself away and do whatever it wanted and the man would be completely helpless to stop it? Why is that? Well, if, uh, if you've ever looked into this, I had not until I heard this. When an elephant is a baby, what they do, at least uh, uh, an elephant in a zoo, not elephants in the wild, but when an elephant is a baby in a zoo or wherever it is, early on in its life, it has a metal chain, a, a thick, heavy metal chain strapped around its arm. And on the other side of that chain, it's attached to a concrete pillar. And it's, let's say, maybe it's 10 feet long, this chain. And so for the first however many months, possibly years of this elephant's life, it is bound by that chain. And it quickly understands that no matter how hard it tugs, the chain is not going to break. He is bound to the concrete pillar. And this, uh, this mentality of being chained to that pillar gets so ingrained in the elephant's mind that by the time it's a few years old, you can take that chain off, tie a simple rope around its arm, and it will think that it's still bound. We, in our sinful condition, live so long bound to sin and so long under the tyranny and slavery of sin that even when we're set free from it, we still live with the mentality that we're bound to it. And just like that elephant could rip its arm away if it wanted to at any point and break the rope, in Christ we have the ability to rip our arms away from the bonds of sin and be set free from it in that moment because we have been delivered from its dominion over us in Christ. Every ounce of grace that you need is given to you in Christ to walk in righteousness. That, I think, is what Paul wants us to get from Ephesians chapter 4. I think he wants us to walk away convinced that we don't have to walk the way we used to walk. He has urged the Ephesians, don't walk that way because you no longer are that man. 
And I would urge all of us this evening in the same way to think about who we are in Christ. And when temptation bears down on us, and when similar opportunities that we were presented with in our past life are presented to sin, I hope that the first thought that comes to mind is, I am a new man. I have put on Christ. I am not who I used to be. I am not bound to the same things that I was once bound to. The great motivation for holiness in the Christian life is not work harder so that you can become better. The great motivation in the Christian life is Christ has set you free. He has delivered you from the bondage of sin. Now be what he has made you by virtue of your union with Christ. That's our takeaway for this evening. I hope I haven't lost you in the details of comparing different views of the passage. But the takeaway is simply know your identity and live it out and be convinced that you have been set free as a new man in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks. Even as I have been up here speaking about some of these things and being reminded of the many, many ways that I forget this so often. I thank you that you're patient toward us. Father, I thank you that you have truly redeemed us by the blood of your Son and made us new. I thank you that we are able now in Christ to walk in a manner that's pleasing to you. I pray, Father, that you would help us as your children to believe your word, to take you at your word when you tell us that the old man has been put to death and that we are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. Help us to believe that. Help us to honor you by walking according to our new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.